Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Raphael Zarka, started skating in the south of France where he grew up. Aside from his love for skateboarding, he developed a strong interest for art and archaeology and eventually pursued a career as a visual artist. For the last 20 years, his work has been very much revolving around skateboarding, whether through his various books or the production of skatable sculptures, among other exciting projects. I had the opportunity to meet with him in his studio in Paris late August 2022. Unfortunately, because of technical difficulties, we had to settle for a much poorer audio recording quality. But I've learned a valuable lesson, and fingers crossed, this won't happen again in the future. So here's my conversation with Raphael. I hope you'll enjoy it. So thank you very much, Rafael, for seeing me today. Very glad that we get to do this, and especially in person. As you know, I, I haven't done many of these interviews in person, so it's even better to, to see the person in three dimensions rather than uh, over a screen. Uh, so yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's best for me too. Mostly in this strange situation to have to speak English to, uh, to a French person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, uh, we're going to make it work. <laughs> So I usually start this podcast with the same question with everybody, which is how did you find skateboarding? And uh, can you tell me about growing up? So we just mentioned before we started recording that you grew up in the south of France near Nîmes. So can you tell me about where you grew up and how you discovered skateboarding maybe? Yes, I grew up in a very small village between Nîmes and Montpellier in southern France, like you said. And it was really remote, and I have actually no idea how I discovered skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Most probably, I've seen the toy, like mm-hmm. a plastic skateboard, and maybe my father told me about his uh, youth in Paris and the fact that he already had a skateboard uh, of his own. And I remember that at one point, I was fed up with my bike being, how do you say, punctured, like flat. Oh yeah, like the, the tires would yes, get flat. Yes. Okay, yes, yes. And so it would take days or weeks for my father to fix it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and so I said, I want something that gets never flat. And I asked for a skateboard. Mm-hmm. And my father found me like a very cheap plastic skateboard which was very out of date or out of fashion. Uh, I'm talking about maybe 1985. I was okay. seven or eight. Mm-hmm. I was born in uh, 1977. And so I got this small plastic skateboard and I started to try pushing and started to sit on it and my friends will just push me in the back. And, and since I had this skateboard, some other person in the village They found skateboards too, like maybe an older brothers and the skate was in the garage somewhere. Mm-hmm. So there were a couple of kids, but it was really like being in the 70s. We didn't have like contemporary skateboards. Yeah, yeah. But we learned how to push and to go down one step, I remember that. And so do you remember maybe some of the first magazines or videos that you discovered? Uh, was okay. that a bit later? Yeah, or yeah was that, that, that was much later. I was okay. eight uh, mm-hmm. around that time. And it was, I think, when I was 10 or 11, my uh, parents broke up. And my father met someone who was living in Montpellier. 
Okay. And this person had a, a son too. Mm -hmm. And when I visited them in Montpellier, I realized that there was contemporary skateboard scene, like the skateboard, the plastic skateboard that I had was out of fashion, like I told you. So yeah, yeah. I discovered real skateboards and what they looked like, mm -hmm. and, and the fact that actually you had skateboards that at the time some of them cost 300 francs and that was like sports shops uh, type yeah. of skateboard yeah, yeah, like yeah. in France it was uh, Hawaii skateboard oh, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and there was another brand like, like this so it's mm -hmm. equivalent of Decathlon right now yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and then I discovered that they were actually even like more expensive skateboards like the professional skateboards yeah. mm -hmm. and that was maybe in 98, 99 mm -hmm. and it was around that time I got my first uh, real professional skateboard the Gordon and Smith Nicky Guerrero oh nice yeah mm -hmm. uh, with a Cyclop I took it okay. because I was like a uh, fond of uh, Greek mythology yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like very happy to have a Cyclop <laughs> yeah. but the shape was awful like it was like completely like a carrot <laughs> like uh, the nose was oh, really? actually like, like a point it was maybe three centimeters long okay Wow, and the tail was like huge, like yeah, a spoon, huge, or very or like a spoon. It was yeah. very like a fish. I say like okay, a carrot, okay. but it could have been like a fish, but a very sharp nose. Okay, so I got that board, and when I was on holiday, I discovered the first uh, No Way magazine. That was oh, right. the second issue with a Ray Barbie interview. That was a French magazine, right? That was yeah. a French magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and before that, I had access maybe to uh, Bicross and Skate magazine. Mm -hmm. That was a French magazine that. Had The BMX and skateboarding in the same uh, right in the same magazine. Okay, so that was the start, and that was great. What about uh, videos? Do you remember maybe the first time you saw like an American video or? The first time was just a, a small part. It was during something called the Nuit de la Glisse. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nuit de la Glisse were uh, a compilation of many uh, extreme sports right. uh, clips. Like snowboarding, yeah, snowboarding uh, BMX. Sur surfing, and yeah. all this. And it was the Frankie Hill part from a Propaganda okay. video. And just after that, I discovered that that was a real uh, skateboard video, and mm -hmm. we found the shop. That was the first video my father and my mother bought me. Okay. Mm -hmm. And after that, retrospectively, we went to a, a skate and surf shop and they had other Powell Peralta videos and Santa Cruz videos mm -hmm. but from the years before, like Benzies, oh, yeah. uh, Streets on Fire, Wills right. on Fire, mm -hmm. and all this. So I discovered Propaganda, I think Propaganda is 1990, I would say. I can't remember the years. 1990, I would say. Probably have them in here, but yeah. But, in, in but then, <laughs> like in 1990 or 1991, I discovered like the videos of 88 too. That was yeah. already like a big change. Like yeah. the nose uh, of the skateboarding were getting longer, larger, wider. Yeah, yeah. And, mm -hmm. But for us, for me and my friend, it didn't matter that we had public domain at the same time as uh, propaganda. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, as long as you could watch some, some good skate videos, yeah. Yeah, and I remember one detail that in Southern front there were no skateboard ramps, no half pipe, no skate parks right, at the okay. time, at least not close to where I lived. Yeah. So as soon as there was like a half pipe session, mm -hmm. we were like fast forward, like Mm. Hated uh, <laughs> okay. the, only street the, skating. Yeah, only okay. street skating. Okay. Like, we could only relate to the street skating. Like, yeah, yeah. That, that ramp, maybe yeah. some mini ramp session because they were more fun to watch to us mm. at least.
So what about art? Tell me how art became an interest for you. Was it as well when you were growing up or did it come later in no, your life as a young adult? adult? Yeah, so that came later. Okay. And it also came by chance. When I was a teenager, I had no interest in art and my father was a, an antique dealer. So I was interested in objects and just collecting things like any young person uh, would be. Yeah. And my mother, she was mostly in organic food and alternative therapies and stuff like okay. this. So like nothing related to, to art. They never took me to any museums. Okay. But I was like I had friends of the family who were living in the garden of the castle of the little town where I was uh, living at the time, Sommières. And in this garden, I started digging holes with my friends. Mm -hmm. Like doing archaeology, but like because we've yep. seen Indiana Jones and <laughs> yeah. and like any kids, you're just like dreaming of finding treasures, yeah, yeah. buried treasures, a mummy or like some. So we yeah, didn't treasure. find any mummies, but mm -hmm. we found a lot of um, catapult balls and cannonballs oh. and, and stuff like. There were many things, and I mentioned this because like that got a very big impact or influence of my future life yeah. in France when you start what we call the lycée like mm -hmm. the high, high school, school maybe, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you have to choose what major what major yeah. you, you will have mm -hmm. and I had no interest about skateboarding yeah. but the lady who was asking me Are you sure you don't have another type of interest? I ended up telling her, yes, I like archaeology. Like I like yeah. uh, trying to find treasures, just like in Indiana, Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> and she said, oh, okay, so you, you like treasures and stuff, so you like archaeology, you must study art history. Okay. I said, okay, mm -hmm. I have to study art history. Well, yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. But say, but to study art history, you also have to have art classes, like painting classes right. and drawing classes. Mm -hmm. And I had no interest in this, but for me, like before high school these art classes were just like uh, leisure times yeah so I said okay why not so I ended up going in a very good high school in Nîmes mm -hmm. where I would never have gone if I didn't choose this uh, yeah. major right right and that's how I started getting these classes And mm -hmm. I was really bad at it. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I'm really bad at drawing. I like I. There's no connection between my eyes and my hands. <laughs> and also, I had the wrong idea about what art was about. Mm -hmm. Like, if as a child never go into a museum, it's really hard to understand the whole change of modern art. Yeah. And so I I was still in my head with the idea that art was about uh, skill. Yeah. It was about you have to draw like uh, an Italian master uh, yeah. would do or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was not interested in committing to that. Okay. I had a problem in learning. Mm -hmm. Like skateboarding was maybe the yeah. only thing I was capable of learning. And so the like the first year in high school, like the the art teacher was like completely fed up with me. And, like, <laughs> he, maybe he wanted to throw me away, but it was, he was, he could not do that. Okay. And then the second year of high school, there was another teacher, and suddenly there was a revolution. We started studying Dada movement, yep. like a movement from modernism in Switzerland, France, and other parts of Europe. Uh -huh. And there was a class about an artist called Kurt Schwitters. 
German okay. artist like collagist is making collage okay. very influenced by the collages of uh, Picasso and Braque right. and suddenly that was a revolution for me because mm-hmm. I noticed that was a type of art that did not require any specific skill but right. you needed to have a specific uh, eye, eye on yeah. glance yeah. on what is around you yeah. Yeah. so a guy like Coach Twitters, he would pick up like a paper on the street or I don't know a page of a book a poster that he will tear in two and organize this mm-hmm. and make a, like an abstract construction mm-hmm. and I really loved it immediately like mm-hmm. and it changed my perception and suddenly art was starting to be uh, interesting so you said you were interested in archaeology at first and that's what brought you to study arts in this high school but afterwards you didn't uh, eventually you didn't pursue archaeology as a job uh, even though what you do in some ways has a link to archaeology but uh, at what point did you decide okay I'm going to go rather towards the art route than the archaeologist route just after High school, I think uh, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I had f- really good friends who were in my class, and these friends were also skateboarding. We were playing music together, mm-hmm. and some of these artists, like the Dada movements or, or stuff, it was also very diverse. They were doing performances, they were doing photographs, they were doing like, and so that was a very cool idea. Like you can do everything, and the type of life that they were living mm-hmm. seemed extremely exciting. Yeah. So it was not maybe like. I didn't want to express myself or I didn't I didn't think I had that many things to to tell to yeah, the world to or share to, yeah, yeah to share mm-hmm. but I thought that was the only type of life that seemed exciting and yeah. I wanted to to try it okay so after high school I went to the university and it's mostly when you want to become an art teacher that you do that yeah. I didn't go to art school straight ahead so I did two years in the university and what did dur- you study over there just art, art? Yeah, okay. like art but art in the university it's less practical it's yes. more theoretical right okay or historical mm-hmm. and generally speaking you do that when you want to be an art teacher okay and after two years of being told what i needed to do what i needed to learn and stuff i was completely fed up mm. and realized i wanted to be in an art school what we call in france the école des beaux-arts okay but I was also into painting at that time. Mm-hmm. Like most of the young students, they think the art history is the history of painting. It's also maybe the easiest thing to do. Like you don't start with sculpture usually. Yeah, yeah, for it takes sure. more space and mm-hmm. it's heavier. It's more accessible. Yeah. yeah. So painting do, is yeah. more accessible. So right. that's what I was thinking I wanted to become, to become a painter. Painter, okay. But at this time, in most of the art school in France, painting was having a crisis. Okay. Like for most of the people, painting was something of the past, something linked to commodity, mm-hmm. uh, something linked to, well, I would say in the end to the 19th century. It was like after 68 uh, and the 70s in France, they were really, the contemporary art really reacted against painting as a commodity or art as a commodity okay. and promoted a more experimental uh, approach towards uh, art in general okay. like mm-hmm. you know land art uh, minimal mm-hmm. art and right, there are right. not people who are just like behind a nisel and uh, doing a uh, painting and no figurative painting at all mm-hmm. so I was scared to go to art school and to be disappointed because I would be uh, it would be impossible to paint and I decided to study in England because right. in England yes. 
Of course, you had contemporary art, but maybe because of the type of country it is, it's also more conservative. So painting was uh, still accepted in parallel to the more uh, experimental uh, approach. Okay. So I went to a small art school in uh, southern uh, England, in Winchester. I stayed there uh, two years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and did a, a BA there. Okay. And afterwards, you came back to France and went to the Beaux-Arts, right? In Paris? To the Beaux-Arts in Paris, yes. yeah. Paris okay. School of Art. And so, how was it being in the Beaux-Arts compared to England, regarding what you just said about the approach in France towards art, uh, painting, especially? That's complicated, because I arrived in England, but I was also learning a lot. So, yeah. I also realized that to be a real good painters in, the, in the, the end of the 20th century or the beginning of the 21st century, mm-hmm. you had to be committed like 100%. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the data artist in me uh, wanted to explore more diversity. And also, to go back to these things that you noticed about archaeology and the yeah. fact that today my work can have some... Uh, links to yeah. archaeology but I also think skateboarding and these guys these Kurt Schwitters and Dadaism had some link mm-hmm. like the fact mm-hmm. that in the end I preferred working with some things that I find or yeah. some processes that I was developing mm-hmm. rather than invent or create something out of the blue uh, yeah. on, on the paper mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so basically when I was in England when I arrived I had brushes and pigments mm-hmm. and when I left I had no brushes and I was making objects and okay. and was playing around with the idea of painting. Okay. To give you a clearer example for my degree show mm-hmm. I showed some rabbit skin glue objects. Rabbit skin glue that that's, that that would sound very uh, barbarian. <laughs> so it's a glue Mm-hmm. made out of rabbit skin okay. that you use to put on the canvases like all the canvases that you have to make it stronger and to protect the oh, linen w- once the painting is done not, not, the, oh, not before. before you have your stretcher with a right. stretcher uh-huh. you put the canvas on the stretcher and uh-huh. then you apply the rabbit skin glue okay. and then you put the gesso and then you paint on it okay, okay, okay. but what I did is that I used this uh, rabbit skin mm-hmm. that could be a, like a, a type of resin or uh, to make objects I, I had plastic objects and I was putting like layers and layers of mm-hmm. rabbit skin and in the end I had like some bowls and some stuff okay. made out of translucent this very strange materials okay. that can look like and I was organizing uh, still lifes on shelves or freestanding objects made out of this so I was like becoming slowly uh, a sculptor, a sculptor, or being right. interested in more sculptural approaches, mm-hmm. but still with the materials or the history of painting. Yeah. And then I arrived in Paris. Paris is a huge school. Like, Very famous one. Um, it is famous and big, and also it doesn't work like any other school in France. It's more linked to the academy and the schools in Germany. They they still work this way. It means that you choose. A professor, an artist mm-hmm. that you will work under in his class. Right, okay. So each artist in Paris, they have a space and they have a certain amount of students, let's say 30 students. Okay. And these students are mixed in between the first and the fifth year. And you all work, or at least you gather in this space. Mm-hmm. And you have artists representing all the different trends 
Okay. So you had like very figurative painters, you had abstract painters, you had photographs, you are everything, like video yeah. artists, right, right. everything. And overall, the school must have been like 10 times bigger than my school in Winchester. And I was coming from a, like a village near Nîmes, or I was coming from yeah. this little city yeah, of Nîmes, yeah. then the little city of uh, Winchester. Winchester. And I had a very, that was a big deal for me, like mm -hmm. being in Paris. Paris yeah. <laughs> So it took me a lot of time to, to adjust get, to, to adjust to get yeah. used to it. And the work I was really lost, so I, I didn't carry on the type of work that I just described you. Mm -hmm. I discovered other artists, other ways and methods of working, mm -hmm. uh, more linked to investigations. When I was in England, I met an artist called Tacita Dean, who is an extremely famous artist uh, now. And she was really like a detective. Mm -hmm. right? She was making investigations, documenting her trips and working on stories that she heard, making videos, photographs, drawings. And I was completely fascinated by her approach. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to find my way through hers. But it started this way. I started using photographs to document some concrete objects. Okay. That could have been sculptures, mm -hmm. but that were not. They were just like some random, random objects, yeah. uh, forgotten on the side of the road. And uh -huh. So I started documenting this. And along this, I documented an abandoned experimental track for an air cushion uh, train of the 70s. Okay. A train called the Aerotrain in, in oh, French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have a giant track, uh, concrete. It's almost 20 kilometers long, mm -hmm. north of Orléans. And so I took a photograph of this space, and then with a friend of mine at that time, Vincent, we committed like two years of our study to create a vehicle mm -hmm. that would adapt to this rail, and we made a video out of it, and the vehicle was a sculpture itself, mm -hmm. and that was what we presented for a, a your degree, degree your or master right. degree, whatever. Okay, like. okay. So you were still skating while you were going through all this or, or was there a point where you kind of stopped skating for a bit? I'm not sure how I, much it was still in your life at that time. I stopped skating at the end of the high school because I hurt myself. I dislocated my shoulder several times and got okay. an operation. Got stuck, mm -hmm. and also the skateboarding around that time was going in a, in a very strange uh, phase. Okay, like it was going down, but that was not the problem of the skateboard going down or underground was completely fine uh, yeah. with me. But it was also this time where switch stands uh, appeared. Skateboarding was getting very te technical. Technical, yeah. And I was much more interested in big lip slides or mm -hmm. uh, simple tricks, but... Uh, Executed long, well. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I was doing flippy tricks, but I never could catch on with uh, switch dance, for, for instance. Okay, okay. And at this time, if you didn't manage to do those tricks that were considered hype, you yeah. were really considered as... a a loser or... <laughs> a complete loser. Yeah, yeah. And I remember like several, several like specific moments... And because it was also changing very quickly, but, but in Nîmes, we didn't have like any skate shop. The skate shop were in Montpellier or Toulouse. And, and so we were pretty isolated, even if it was only 40 kilometers uh, away. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, I learned pressure flips oh, yeah? and, and 360 pressure flips. And I, I could jump oh, yeah. like three stairs uh, doing a 360 pressure flip. <laughs> okay. And I was very proud of myself. <laughs> and I went to Montpellier or a skater from Montpellier was around. And he saw me do that and said, what? You just did a, a pressure flip. 
Yeah. But you cannot do that yeah. anymore. <laughs> like that, that's so uncool. Yeah. Like, do a 360 kickflip, or but like not a 360, wow. 360 pressure flip. And I was capable of doing 360 kickflip, but I was like, it's like how come? Like how come? Can you tell me like it's uncool and in a very critical way? Yeah. And around this time, I also remem <laughs> remember another uh, anecdote. So we were remote, and the type of uh, clothing we wanted to have at this time were, were the new deal, big deal uh, baggy pants. Yeah. But I could not buy them, so I had to order them mm -hmm. in a skate shop in Toulouse. All right. And he told me, okay, I have this, but it's, uh, it's pretty big. I said, well, but it's okay, pretty big is, uh, <laughs> is good. And it's, uh, it's uh, blue, but like very blue. Okay, very blue is good. <laughs> So I received the pants and it was actually pretty big and actually pretty blue. But I paid, or my parents paid 500 uh, francs to get a big deal uh, at okay. the time. So a big deal was a big deal. <laughs> and so I was wearing it and all the people in my high school were taking the piss because like nobody was wearing uh, yeah. baggy pants. There were no, that, not that many skaters around. Yeah. But I was, it was okay because I was a skater and mm. I was proud to have my skateboarder outfit. Right. But then, once again, I was going to Montpellier or Toulouse and someone was looking at me and saying, ah, but you didn't know that the pants were getting like tighter now? <laughs> like yours is really, really too, ba too baggy, you know? Now only ravers are wearing this type of pants. Okay. And I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> are you kidding again. me? Like <laughs> And for me, skateboarding was just about like freedom and I realized two things that I There was not trends. free yeah. anymore because mm -hmm. I, I wanted to look like a skater and I was not free anymore because like people were also being very judgmental. judgmental yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was like, I realized how stupid I was to pay 500 francs at yes, this time. To get the so pants. Yeah. Let's say 100 euros to, mm -hmm. for a, a pair of trousers. Right. And I was stupid and I was skateboarding in Montpellier and sometimes I would spend a whole day trying flips over steps, trying uh, flip, no slides, flips, things, whatever, yeah. and not managing to do any tricks the whole day. I could just have done like a, a tail slide or, or just a big crooked grind like mm -hmm. I used to do them and, mm -hmm. and that was the fun out of it, mm -hmm. but I was not capable of imposing myself as a skater. Yeah. And so I said, okay, that, that's enough. So I committed to the, to the rock band that I had at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to England and I didn't bring any skateboard. Okay. And I was just so hooked by Art. fine art yeah, that yeah, yeah. it was okay. But I always skated over the summer when I was back, uh, back oh, in France. Okay. Yeah, the, those are good, uh, interesting experiences that you went through. But after those, so it didn't discourage you from skating when you were back home and over the it, summer. It did. And stuff? Like I, I suddenly saw myself as a not so skater anymore. Like mm -hmm. as someone who starts back, like okay. eternally. I considered myself to be old or older. I was over 20. Uh, and so I was like the guy who didn't skate for six months and would skate two months over yeah. the summer. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I was not hype anymore. I was not necessarily following uh, the skate magazines, right, uh, right, skate right. videos. And that was the same in Paris. 
I didn't have any boards, but my friends in Nîmes mm-hmm. started op- opening a, a skate shop. Okay. So when I was coming over, I said, oh, Raphael, you should have a board and take that one. And I mm-hmm. give you the trucks and the wheels. And so I had skateboards, but I was not ready to put any money uh, in it. And when I was in Paris, most of the time, I didn't have any skates. Mm-hmm. was not skating. And, okay. And I only started skateboarding again in the year uh, 2000s, I think. Okay. And so, at what point would you say that skateboarding sort of came into your art? Because uh, you just mentioned studying, and then you started working, and then you did many exhibitions all over the world, and you did, uh, I wanted to ask you also about a, I don't know if you say that in English, but a residency at the Villa Medicis in mm-hmm. Rome. Yes. I think that's where you wrote one of your books. Um, yes. And so, at what point did you start seeing that skateboarding was maybe influencing you in your, in your art and mm-hmm. what you were doing? I think that was just after I graduated from the art school in Paris. Yeah. So that was in 2002. We did this project with uh, Vincent called the Pentacycle, this bike on the concrete track mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. train. Yeah, yeah. And even this, like, there were wheels. It was all about finding a concrete uh, spot somewhere that, that was not as good spot for skateboarding but still Mm -hmm. I thought the methodology was quite similar mostly uh, to the things that I fancied Mm -hmm. like I remember in uh, Streets on Fire Mm -hmm. they go to the giant pipeline somewhere in Arizona or whatever and Mm -hmm. that was like I was so excited towards this type of trips and I had the feeling that with this train track that was the same type of uh, infrastructures that we were investigating but for other reasons yeah yeah and also around that time, like when you learn about art history and a lot of brainy stuff, like or uh, cultural stuff, suddenly I felt uh, skateboarding was a subculture that was uh, rooting me in the teenage years. Okay. And I remembered some of the mottos of skateboarding where shut up and skate. And it was not cool also to be a good student yeah, when you were right. uh, a, a skater, skater even yeah. in high school or whatever. <laughs> like being yeah. a skater would be like being bad at school. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not very good. It had to be all of your identity. You couldn't yeah. be or do anything else, kind of. So when I was in, uh, in art school, I almost never referred to my experience as a skater. But I told you I started taking photographs. And among these photographs, I took some photos of a concrete mini ramp in Marseille, then okay. of a concrete half pipe of the 70s in, uh, in Brittany, near Lorient. And so it started to be uh, influential. And in the year 2002 or 2003, oh yeah, that's another a- aspect. Mm-hmm. I also, in my studies, they asked me to write uh, thesis, essays yeah. and, and stuff. And I actually really liked this. Yeah, writing and investigating, yep. reading and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so in 2003, like skateboarding was like back in my mind. That was also the beginning of the first website. There was mm-hmm. a website about the history of Dogtown before the films or just oh. when the films were about to the first documentary yeah. to come out. Right, right. And so I decided to write something or to start writing about uh, skateboarding. Mm -hmm. I almost thought I should go back to the university and do a a kind of master in sociology or... Mm -hmm. And I was discussing with a a friend and said, but you don't need to go to the university, just write it and and that's it. Mm -hmm. And for me, there was something to prove. There was a conflict within me. 
I was such a big fan of skateboarding, it still haunted me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know if I really wasted all these years of my youth or if it had some type of uh, interest that goes beyond yeah. mm -hmm. the activity just to stand on a skateboard. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And I think art school gave me some, um, some theoretical tools to investigate skateboarding. So basically I applied to skateboarding as a type of uh, theoretical or historical approach yeah. that you would apply to an artist or an art movement. Okay. That's a, a good link, I think, to your some of the books that you've written. So I'm not sure in what order they were released, but I think one of the very first one was uh, in French, it's La Conjonction Interdite. Yes. So I don't know if it's the exact translation, but The Forbidden conjunction. Conjunction, yes. Yeah. yeah. And so can you tell me about maybe this first book and, and the following ones that you yeah, did? Yeah, exactly. So The Forbidden Conjunction, La Conjunction Interdite, yep. is the one I was working on in 2003. Right. But in 2003, I had the idea to write like a huge book about skateboarding, mm -hmm. like covering all the aspects. And I was taking notes about the history of skateboarding, but also about some methodology of skateboarding. And I was interested in an um, Argentinian writer called uh, George Luis Borges. Okay. And the translator of Borges in French is someone called Roger Caillois. And oh, this yes. Roger Caillois also mm -hmm. wrote theoretical books. And yes. because I discovered him through Borges, I started being interested in Caillois. Mm -hmm. And I discovered a book he wrote in the 60s about games. Yes, I have it right here. It's the... Les jeux et les hommes, exactly, so yeah. games and, and men and men, games, men and or games. games and men. I don't yes. know exactly how it right. translated in in English. Uh -huh. But that was like the tool that I chose to investigate skateboarding. Okay, because like his book is amazing. Like maybe some the sociologist right now would find it uh, outdated or whatever mm -hmm. but for me it really helped me to see clear about like what is a game and what mm -hmm. are the because in his book he's considering like sport as a game but mm -hmm. chess as a game yep. theater as a game so yep. and all this is making like categories to say like yes. we function in certain ways and within these categories one was like Agon the competition mm -hmm. and another was like Elinks the shiver or the something oh the, the frisson right yeah, like uh, the, the yeah. thrill or the thrill yeah the yeah thrill. yeah exactly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he explains that there are two opposite ways of playing because mm -hmm. if you are a sportsman you need to be knowledgeable about your uh, like when you are doing karate like and martial arts like it's through the not the millimeter but even less than this mm -hmm. so it's all about control yeah that's yeah. what I was looking for mm -hmm. so it's about control yeah. and the Elings category is about losing control like it's jumping uh, yeah. like how do you say like uh, so like, like bungee, bungee jumping, jumping. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like this type of thing or roller coasters and yeah, this type yeah. of things mm -hmm. and I noticed in the book that Kaiwa had problem positioning skiing for instance yes and for me that was clear that all the extreme games or what we say in French sport de glisse yes. were actually in between the thrill and the control Right, well, right. that the control was directed towards more thrill. Yes, and, and so that mm -hmm. helped me uh, categorizing uh, skateboarding. skateboarding and to try to see how it fitted in Kaiwa's uh, theory and so mm -hmm. how it fitted among other games and other uh, sports. And so after this one, another one you made was in French. It's Chronologie lacunaire du skateboard. So 
like a chronology of skateboarding basically. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, it's a, it's also another title for it is a, a day with no waves, mm -hmm. and so it's basically yeah like a, a a history of skateboarding like year by year, and you say well you reference uh, what brand started, uh, what big event might have uh, occurred, or which skater was born for example. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, tell me about working on this uh, this other book. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of the anniversary issues of big magazine like Thrasher. Uh -huh. Transworld and when they had like chronologies mm -hmm. and that's that's what I love that I don't know exactly why or but I was always uh, driven yeah. uh, through chronologies and when I was doing my researches I was collecting very specially this magazine and yeah. I was like copying them mm -hmm. in a word file on my computer right and then it became my notebook I okay. had the chronology of, let's say, the 20th anniversary of Trasher magazine. Mm -hmm. And whenever I discovered something new mm -hmm. about skateboarding in France or in the US or wherever, I was putting it in the chronology. And then the chronology started growing and growing mm -hmm. and growing and growing. Yeah. And I realized that there were holes in this chronology that I didn't know how the flat ground only started. Right. Because they didn't, they didn't say it precisely in, yeah. the, in the chronology. Okay. And then books started to came out. Like Jan Borden's book about skateboarding uh -huh. and other other books. So I ordered these books on on the internet and read them. And as soon as I was finding some very precise information, yeah, you would uh, put it into your. I would put it in the yeah. chronology. Okay. So basically, I gathered all the books that was available about skateboarding at mm -hmm. that time. Yeah. And all the magazines I could access. At first, I didn't have that many. I went to Marseille because I had some friends who were really nerds and. <laughs> had piles of yeah. fashion magazines okay. but that was not all of them and also I was uh, missing some more recent magazine mm -hmm. and I went to Nosebone Skate Shop in Paris yep. and I explained that I was working on this and the first little book had a small amount of success like there was some articles in French skate magazine so when I was in Nosebone I knew a little bit about what I was doing so it okay. helped and also I could go and take as many magazines as I wanted mm -hmm. and I was like going through them and mostly the first part of the magazine when you have the news about the industry and, right. the, yeah. and the contest and the mm -hmm. thing. and I was like putting all this information and cross-referencing the information like if a magazine was saying something I was trying to find on the internet if that was true or if another okay. person was doing this but you have to keep in mind that was the first uh, decades mm -hmm. of the internet Yeah. There were no podcasts like yours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There were no yeah. all this amount of information. Yeah. It was difficult to gather all this information, yeah. I'm sure. So, yeah. so the first chronology came out in 2005 and then yeah. I updated it yes. until 2009. Right, right. And uh -huh. now, sometimes it crosses my mind that I should try to yeah. extend it to... I wanted to ask you if you were considering doing it. I would and I'd like to. One of the problems is that I don't have as much time as yeah. I used to have. <laughs> like I was not that very famous as an artist, so mm -hmm, I had a lot mm -hmm. of time for myself. Yeah. But now, even if I found time or even some money to dedicate to such a project, I wouldn't know how to catch up. Yeah. Like, would there's been I... so much going on since uh, 2009. And yeah. So. There's so much going on and also too much input. Yeah. And so the hard thing now would be to edit all this information. 
information yeah. because like you are going to all the sub stories to the sub stories to the sub stories mm -hmm. now you can do like one book like this mm -hmm. just about uh, skateboarding in Paris or yeah. uh, skateboarding For in sure. Portland or yeah. uh, in Birmingham and suddenly it's too much yeah, 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 yeah. but basically mm -hmm. what the chronology is is the story of skateboarding mm -hmm. as it was told by the skate magazines and the books Mm -hmm. So I think it's not very innovative, but maybe what's new is the way it was written. Like I wrote a book for non-skaters. Right. Like each time if I am using a word, I am describing the word. Yeah, I remember like, you would explain what a kickflip is, for example. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. whenever, yeah. if you have a holly, for me that was my uh, the best pleasure that I had is that actually a lot of people who were not into skateboarding, but mostly into histories of subculture in general, mm -hmm. really enjoyed the book. Okay. But this type of people, they would read the history of reggae music in uh, Kingston. They would. Uh, okay. They would. <laughs> Uh, be interested in the evolution of punk music in London or New York or yep. the history of uh, I don't know psychedelic uh, posters in uh, San Francisco you know, this type of, of people yeah, 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 and also within the art world some art critics some art historians were really interested in the two first books and, mm -hmm. and I thought at least I achieved uh, yeah. something mm -hmm. and then I was surprised because actually even within the small French skateboarding world the book was considered as quite successful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that was good I never uh, I never thought the forbidden conjunction or the chronology would have such uh, a big impact yeah, yeah. or any uh, impact mm -hmm. because I didn't think skateboarders were reading yeah <laughs> well I, I don't think a lot of them read but uh, maybe more nowadays no but like <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this as a kind of uh, an offense to, to the yeah. skaters but <laughs> it's just an expression of what I felt yeah. as a teenager but mm -hmm. also I didn't realize that skateboarding or the skateboarding world was much more diverse than I was thinking mm -hmm. and also the age of the skaters was more, a lot different mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. the skaters were doing like uh, were going to the university studying sociology yeah. uh, anthropology mm -hmm. architecture uh, fine art right. and so they developed in the same way I developed that mm -hmm. they kept their uh, passion for skateboarding but they enriched it Uh, yeah, with other with other things, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, things. other subjects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the next one was free ride. So this one you wrote when you were in Rome. In this one you talk about cycloid transitions. Mm -hmm. And when I got here, you just showed me one that I don't know if you built it or people with you conceived I, uh, it. I designed it. I drew it. Okay. But I didn't build it with my hand. And okay. My, uh, okay. Saws and jigsaws and stuff. Okay. Okay. So freeride for me was like the real bridge that I needed or that I wanted from the moment I got out of school. Mm -hmm. Like the two first books, nobody should care who wrote it. Mm -hmm. The fact mm -hmm. that my main activity is being a fine artist, a mm -hmm. sculptor, has no meaning. Yes. Like you can yes. read it as a skater. Mm -hmm. And if I was someone from the university or if mm -hmm. I was a, a baker or whatever, you, you don't get a lot of information out of this. It's really right. about skateboarding and not about art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But free ride is a bridge, like it's about skateboarding and all the stuff mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. uh, spaces in yes. general and geometrical spaces. Mm -hmm. And also it makes a link in between a certain type of practice within sculpture in the 60s and the 70s. 
an evolution of sculpture, mm-hmm. like sculptures that you can actually climb on or that yes. you can use or mm-hmm. with movements like minimal art or uh, cinetical art in Europe. And at the end, also, there is a chapter on writing modern art, my collection of uh, skaters on public art and what it means. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, it right here. Yeah. yeah, so, and that was uh, way before uh, the writing modern art photo book. Uh, yes, that you published uh, later. Uh, well, yeah, it was published. Okay. But I already started to show some of these photographs in museums. Yeah, uh, to illustrate uh, your ideas. No, that's a complicated thing, not to illustrate my idea, but as a work of art. And I know it's very hard uh, to understand that because I showed that in the Lyon Biennale, maybe in, uh, in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. The installation that I showed was a modern sculpture of the 30s by okay. an artist called Katarzyna Kobro, okay. a Polish artist. So it's a sculpture made by somebody else, like not me, in the middle of a space. Mm-hmm. And all around the sculpture, some photographs of skaters on public sculptures. Okay. Photographs taken by professional or not, but skate photographers. Okay. And I contacted the skate photographers and I asked them the right and mm-hmm. pay them the right to print their photographs in black and white and choose the format and install them around this sculpture. Okay. And this installation, very mm-hmm. conceptual installation, was my work. Okay. A work made out like a curator or like a publisher of the magazine. Yes. Like some people are known as gatherers mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. than makers. And I know it can seem strange, and I'm not the inventor of this in the contemporary art. Mm-hmm. If some other really famous artist didn't work this way, mm-hmm. I would not be allowed myself to call myself an artist and to present such a work mm-hmm. that's really linked to what we call conceptual art in the history of the 20th century so I was making this type of artworks mm-hmm. like about documentation but was also making photographs and sometimes uh, sculptures but this last chapter is really like an explanation of this gesture mm-hmm. to show uh, within the museum this photograph of skaters on public sculptures and why I was tempted to link it to a modern sculptures and these sculptures of Kobro and she's very famous for using right angles okay. only uh, metal planes okay. and curves like half circles so any skaters who would go in the Pompidou Museum for instance mm-hmm. and we would see the Katarzyna Kobro that they have there would immediately see it as a skate ramp mm-hmm. but it is not a skate ramp it was made in the 30s mm-hmm. but what we associate to it is a skate ramp mm-hmm. and my work was to investigate okay it looks like a skate ramp but does it mean something else mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. can you make something out of this uh, likeness like this ressemblance yes yes okay I had a question about I don't remember in which book you mentioned this, but you talk about how children could like um, appreciate art, so to speak, better than uh, adults sometimes because they weren't biased and they could uh, 
just have an interaction with a work of art uh, that an adult wouldn't have the same experience, basically. Can you tell me a bit about what, what happens, perhaps? When, why do adults, uh, why don't they interact with art the same way? It's, it's not really an idea of mine. I think it's an idea of an art historian and, and critic who was mm -hmm. writing about uh, minimal art of the 60s and 70s. And when people like Robert Morris or Carl Andre were making artworks that you have to walk on or that you have mm -hmm. to push or whatever, it was hard for the spectators around that time to allow themselves to be part of the, of the arts of, of the artwork yeah, yeah, yeah. or to experiment it physically. Yes. For a lot of them, that was not what the aesthetical relationship is about. Yes. So yeah. they wouldn't want to do that. They mm -hmm. would not consider it. And so some children who were visiting the shows, they would directly climb upon it yeah. and, and activate the piece. Mm -hmm, in a mm -hmm. way, the more traditional uh, spectators would never do. Yes. Because it's not that they are not physically capable of doing it. It's because also they have no interest. And for them, that's not what art should be about. So they would mm -hmm. not do it. Yeah. And sometimes, intuitively speaking, a child would understand better a piece by Carl André. Carl mm -hmm. André is only putting metal plates on the floor. And he says this, like, you have to walk on it to understand the piece. Yeah, yeah. And if you walk on it with tennis shoes, you have no sound. Yeah. You cannot tell if copper sounds differently yeah. than a different type of metal in this oh, case. Yeah. But if you have like hard shoes or if you have high heels, whatever, mm -hmm. suddenly you have like the sound and it resonates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what a child would do. Like if he's running onto it or if he's like knocking on it. Uh, yeah with, uh, I don't know, with whatever toy that he has in his hand, mm -hmm. he will make the sculpture sound and he will reveal the piece. Mm -hmm. And so I just talked before about uh, the cycloid ramp or transition. Mm -hmm. uh, I was interested in this because uh, from what I understood, so ramps are usually built uh, like a mini ramp, for example, or a vert ramp, whatever. There's a, a bit of vert, a vertical, mm -hmm. and then it curves, and then there's a flat bottom for a yes. bit, and then the exact same shape on the other side. And a cycloid transition is basically the fastest way to go from one point to the other, from what I understood. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time when you first wrote about this, apparently there weren't any cycloid transitions that had been built. But since then, you have uh, built some with, with the help of friends. And so can you tell me about, about this? And I think I heard about it through a, a thrasher piece or something. I heard about it through Galileo, like the yes. astrono astronomer, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because he was studying gravity, he wanted to find uh, ways to prove that the sun was at the center of the universe, mm -hmm. so he wanted to study freefall. And to study freefall, he started like uh, throwing balls on inclined plans yeah. and on curves. Right. And in your description, you said curve, Yeah. but a curve is nothing in itself, like it's a family. Yeah, have, yeah, in curves you have a lot of curves. Different, uh, what yeah. you meant when you described the mini ramp uh -huh. is that you had the vertical part, let's say, and, mm -hmm. the, the and then you have an arc of a circle. Yes, but like for me, I know you said that because we were speaking English and we are French, yeah, yeah. but for me too, like a curve was an arc of a circle. Mm -hmm. And for Galileo too, when he made his apparatuses, he used arc of a circle. Yeah. And so he, he knew or he measured that an arc of a circle, if you put the ball on it, it goes faster to the zero point. Okay. In geometry, like the, the shortest 
path between two points, mm -hmm. you know that it's a straight line. Straight line, yeah. But if you apply gravity to that, the fastest way in between like a high point and a low point is not an inclined plane. This mm -hmm. is a straight line and the shortest. Yeah. The curve that you have, like an arc of a circle in between the two, is longer, but it is faster. It is faster, right. So yeah. it's almost the same, not with gravity, that the, the idea of the peripheric in Paris. Yeah, okay. If you want to go to my place, to the northern part of Paris, mm -hmm. and if you go the straight line, you will have all the red lights, and you oh, will yeah, go yeah. very slow. Mm -hmm. But if you take the very long peripheric, yeah. you actually you have less... Ch <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't have the stoplights and stuff, so exactly. you'll, you'll so go faster. Exactly, so it is faster. Yes. So okay. that's, that's the type of ideas. Okay. And so basically I started to investigate other type of curvatures. Yeah, yeah. So we could have used uh, ellipses instead mm -hmm. of arc of circles. Yeah, we yeah. could have used this cycloid which is a very interesting curve because some physicists after Galileo in the 18th century mm -hmm. they managed to prove I don't know exactly how mm -hmm. mathematically speaking but they managed to prove that it is the fastest curve on earth okay. for a ball. And I never I would never have had this idea that there was such a thing as the fastest curve. I would not have thought about it as a concept. Mm -hmm. I would not think it exists. Yeah. For me, I would think it was. It depends on the height or the type of the radius or mm -hmm. the radiuses of the ellipses or whatever. Yeah. So I thought it was a bit too complicated, and you have to test too many things to find out. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly, mm -hmm. as a skater, to know that such a thing exists, I was like just fascinated mm -hmm. with the cycloid. Yeah. And I know that the purpose of a skateboard ramp is to be the fastest. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like being very interested in mini ramps, mm -hmm. I noticed that skaters had the tendency to want the mini ramps to be fast mm -hmm. and for the mini ramps to be fast they were diminishing the radius so they were let's say like classically mini ramps would have like a one meter and 40 centimeters radius right and it's considered too flat and too slow so to make it quicker faster mm -hmm. they would go around one meter twenty okay okay it is steeper yeah okay but as a skater the problem i have with this type of strategy that i find the curve to be too small mm -hmm. and if you only or the curved part of a mini ramp is very small and then mm -hmm. suddenly you're on the flat bottom and yeah and you don't have much space to take speed again yeah 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 and what I liked about the cycloid, it was very progressive. You don't have one center like a circle. And so it starts very slow and then it's getting steeper and it goes to the vertical right at the end. Yeah, yeah. So I found it very handy because you can lock very easily uh, if you want to do a smith grind or this yeah. type of trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if you ollie into it, even if you are not putting your, uh, your wheels just below the coping when you go down, yeah, yeah. You still have curves and you can still take or gain speed. Okay, okay. So I thought like, oh, that should be uh, interesting. Yeah. But my friends like at Constructo Skate Park, for instance, mm -hmm. they say, no, that's, that's not possible. Like, it's important to have a constant radius. Otherwise, the body is not adjusting or I don't know if it's exactly what they explained. Okay. But they were doubtful. For them, there was like a geometrical and mechanical reason for skaters to use arcs of circle. Yeah. And to me, the only reason is that it's the only curve that is easy to draw. You can just like nail, you have a nail in the board, mm -hmm. you take a string, yeah, and one you have a perfect circle, and yeah. you have the perfect circle. Right. The thing is that an ellipse 
it has two centers mm -hmm. so an ellipse is very complicated to draw but still mm -hmm. it is possible to draw ellipses mm -hmm. some architects uh, in the renaissance or baroque they used ellipses a lot mm -hmm. some uh, gardeners they use ellipses and they know how to trace them just with strings and nails uh, okay. just like we do on our uh, quarter pipes uh, when yeah, we build yeah, them yeah. but the cycloid it's just impossible even with two nails it's too difficult to draw okay so basically that was the problem mm -hmm. and today is with the cc machine you just have to send the equation of the curve mm -hmm. to the computer that yep. is driving the cc machine to have the cycloid okay and so it's also this technical possibility even if today the cc machine like it's not something crazy like mm -hmm. everybody has this type of machine now yeah so that was a possibility and that also that was not that difficult to build so i knew about this and then by chance in a thrasher magazine i read an article about that yeah like somebody in the end of the 80s yeah, in the or, 80s, right? yeah. already thought about mm -hmm. uh, the idea of a cycloid ramp and it's funny the article is great he mentions yeah. galileo and all mm -hmm. the people that i've read about that yeah, yeah, yeah i just couldn't believe it mm -hmm. and, and, and you know i was like proud i thought i discovered something with galileo and mm -hmm. like connecting it to uh, yeah. scalable rent and then suddenly you have to be modest and say well basically everybody has yeah. the same all over, all over the world Some, and if you some, were, yeah. somebody thought about it before me mm -hmm. yeah but mm -hmm. it was okay and at the end of the article is that theoretically speaking it works on the paper it works but we have to try to build yeah, it yeah, and yeah. they knew it was difficult to build uh -huh. and also why would you spend money to try to build something that might not work yeah when you could build like a, just a standard mini ramp and have mm. fun with it sure yeah so basically the year after that I was invited to participate in a Biennale in New York okay and for this Biennale I managed to gather enough money mm -hmm. to build the first cycloid mini ramp okay it was not very impressive it was rather small and it had only one part with a normal curve like okay. the arc of a circle okay you okay. see I go yeah. on with the curve again mm -hmm. so with the arc of a circle and so that was the first uh, trial okay but nobody knew a lot about this ramp in New York so it was not heavily skated okay so I didn't have much feedback mm -hmm. and I think the form of the ramp sculpturally speaking was not very interested okay interesting interesting yeah, yeah. What year was that in New York? Uh, 2011, I think. Okay. 2012, maybe. Okay. And yeah. five or six years after that, let's say the French Ministry of Culture, like a part of them, who is uh, commissioning artworks to artists, mm -hmm. they called me to imagine an outdoor piece that could exist only on paper that you would not need to store. Okay. But they have the plan or they have the idea and if someone wants to build it or if a city needs an artwork for outside, mm -hmm. they can make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went back to the idea of the cycloid ramp and I made something that I would not be too ashamed to show to Katarzyna Kobro, the Polish uh, oh, yeah. sculptor oh, yeah. Who, yeah, yeah. who did her piece in the 30s. Okay. So I made it more sculptural. Okay. And the idea was really to make something also more comparative. Okay. So I had the cycloid, I had different type of curves, different heights, okay. but I also had an inclined plan included okay. to the ramp. To compare everything. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and also with the idea to compare because my my thing was like 
how much of a flat bottom do I have to put in between two cycloids? Yeah. Do I have to put flat bottom yeah. or not? Yeah, yeah. So to resolve this, I decided that the plan of the ramp would not be rectangular but triangular. So it means that the flat would be, let's say, three meter at the base okay. and zero at the top. Okay. And then you would have all the curves, okay. either a cycloid or um, oh, okay. a, a circle. Okay. Yeah. So they are not like just in front of each other. They have yeah. they are at an angle. I see. And also I like this shape because when I was in Rome, I discovered Baroque architecture. Mm -hmm. And in Baroque architecture, sometimes they use fake uh, perspective or mm -hmm. accelerated perspective. You have the impressions that columns, they all have the same size, but mm -hmm. actually in the end, they are much smaller. Mm -hmm. So you have, it looks longer. Yeah, I see. Okay. And when you photograph my cycloid ramp, mm -hmm. it is triangular. Mm -hmm. So it also looks longer. It has like a perceptive uh, effect that I find interesting. Uh, rather interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And that also changing the morphology of the skateboard ramps. Okay. It's kind of a, a random question, but I was interested in asking you about uh, the Galerie Michel Rhin. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about art and being an artist, a contemporary artist like yourself, but I was just wondering how does this collaboration with a, a gallery work and how, how is it beneficial to you and to them? How do you collaborate together and since when have you been working with them? Okay. Galleries in general for a visual artist yep. are the equivalent of an agent mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. a, an actor or yeah, a designer, singer. designer, whatever. But it works in a different way that basically we share the amount of a sale mm -hmm. by 50-50. If, yeah. if I sell something, if I'm lucky, 10,000 euros, let's say, mm -hmm. 5,000 goes to me, 5,000 goes to the to gallerist. The okay. But the gallerist is supposed to have the network. Yes. Like he's supposed to have the collectors. He's okay. supposed to represent older and more famous artists than you. Yeah. So I started working with Michel Rhin when I was 30, I think. Okay. So it was like almost 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was great. I mean, like, we had a great collaboration. I just quitted the gallery recently oh, and I'm okay. starting working with another gallery, Galerie Mitterrand in Paris, okay. uh, right now. I have also galleries in Zurich uh -huh. and a gallery in Sao Paulo. Okay. What you have to know is that, at least in France, you can only have one gallerist in your country and you're not oh. allowed to sell without your gallerist. Okay. If a collector or if you tell me, oh, I like this piece, can, you, can I buy it to Directly you? to you? I say, yeah. no. Morally okay. speaking, there is no, I didn't sign anything oh, uh, okay. with Michel Rhin. I didn't sign anything with uh, Galerie Mitterrand. Yeah. Some galleries today are uh, having you sign papers, uh -huh. but usually it's just a moral contract that you will commit to the collaboration. Yeah. And for me, that was very, very fruitful. That was very through Michel that I was capable of living off my work. Yeah. And for the last uh, 12 to 13 years, mm -hmm. my main income uh, mm -hmm. is the sale of my work. Of your work, yeah. And sometimes I'm also teaching in art schools. Mm -hmm. Most of my friends, they need to teach full-time. Full-time yeah. is two days a week, so it's okay. But yeah. when I was teaching and when I had financially to teach, I was teaching in Annecy. Oh, so yeah. I have to travel uh, yeah. from Paris All the way to over Annecy there. Yeah. twice a month and stay yeah. in Annecy four days, pay my hotel, pay my train tickets. I also taught in uh, Angers, in the art school okay. of, uh, 
congé. Mm -hmm. And then when the gallery started making more sales, I decided I would not be a teacher, a full-time teacher. Okay. But I still go to art school very often. Okay. For diploma, lectures, yeah, studio yeah. visits. Do you go to the Beaux-Arts since you studied over there? Have you ever taught I, over there? Yeah, I, I taught for uh, one semester. Okay. Uh, I took the place of an artist who went uh, on the residency. But apart from that, you know, I mean, like, it's okay. very, very difficult. I tried twice and almost uh, got the, the like job. Like a, a job, yeah. 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 Okay. yeah I positioned at the art school. But mm -hmm. they were, uh, it must be very difficult. Artists, sure. Yeah, like, <laughs> a lot of people want that job. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I wanted to ask you also about this uh, piece that you worked on in 2016, I believe, with uh, the Isle Skateboards crew. Mm -hmm. It was a video project called Paving Space. Yeah. The video was directed by Dan McGee. So tell me about this project and working with them on um, doing that video. Yeah, so for me it's not a video. For me mm -hmm. it's a sculptural project. Yes. Mm -hmm. The video is really dance. Yes. And the photographs were made by Maxime Verret. Mm -hmm. And so that was a collaboration. I knew Sylvain Tonielli because he yep. participated in a project of mine, which was a replica of a minimalist sculpture okay. that was uh, skated on. Free Ride is the title of this uh, sculpture okay. that also gave the title to oh, my book that I took for my book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I knew Sylvain uh, from that. And this event was uh, sponsored by Carhartt. Right, yeah. And Carhartt, through Bertrand Trichet, mm -hmm. also helped me a lot with the books to publish them on also the English translation of the chronology and the yep. Forbidden Conjunction. Mm -hmm. So that was like a network. Carhartt, Sylvain, Tonielli, and at one point, Sylvain was also sponsored by Carhartt mm -hmm. and the co-founder of IL Skateboards. They had a collab together mm -hmm. and they came to see me uh, asking me to do something mm -hmm. for them, like okay. a sculptural thing. Okay, and so to skate. To skate. Right. And I was not like, that was not my thing. Like, I didn't want to dedicate to skatable sculptures. Right. For me, that was not an idea in itself. That was not enough mm -hmm. as an idea. But suddenly, Sylvain really, uh, like, said, like, the magic words. He said, but we don't want you to be distracted from what you are doing. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, uh, exactly what you have to say to me. So I'm just back from Germany, where I was in a, in a museum of uh, mathematics. And I discovered some modules, mm -hmm. plaster, small plaster module, mm -hmm. of a guy called Arthur Schoenflis, a mathematician yes. of the end of the 19th century. Uh -huh. And I want to make something out of these modules. Right. And there is one of them, because he did many with mm -hmm. different types of uh, geometries, only straight lines. Mm -hmm. There was one that was a kind of a half of a truncated pyramid. Okay. And say maybe this one could be useful for skateboarding. And Sylvain uh, looked at it and said, wow, yeah, that would be good. I said, but it's 45 uh, degree degrees. So, so it's quite steep. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's steep. It's not like that nice. On it. Yeah. He said, okay. You do your job and you try to do whatever you want and you feel comfortable with with the sculpture mm -hmm. and we will adapt to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that was the first time, I think the first time of my life that I didn't have the stress to make an art piece that would go directly to a museum or to an art gallery. Mm -hmm. Because when you do a show at the Palais de Tokyo or yeah. in New York, it's meaningful like if you if you don't do the good piece maybe you will not have the good show or you will yeah. not sell the piece or wh whatever so, yeah. so there is a kind of pressure yeah, there is pressure mm -hmm. but now 
I was working with Carhartt and they were offering me, not me, but they were offering to produce a piece around 10,000 euros. Okay. And if the piece is successful, that was great. Mm -hmm. And if the piece was a failure, it would be okay. It will be in the skate community and skate networks, the skate video. Mm -hmm. And I will be safe. Like nobody in the art world would know about it. Okay. That would be fine. Okay. So I think as an artist, maybe I took more risks. And okay. also I had the financial possibility to develop a project that I was not uh, 100% sure about. Okay. It was a solid oak. Uh, yeah. So each module is very, very heavy, heavy, I'm sure. Very, yeah. very difficult to build. So yeah. we had to hire a very skilled and gifted um, wood, wood ca carpenters. carpenters yeah, yeah, yeah. Carpenters actually. Uh -huh. Almost ebonist, we say. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm not sure what the translation Whatever, but yeah. like very uh, trained and, and mm -hmm. skilled. Yeah. And I was discovering the possibility because the modules, there is only one module, one geometry, and it is repeated eight times. Okay. I enlarge the Schoenflies module to the size of a bench. Mm -hmm. So the height of the module was 42 and all the different measurements were related to 42. Okay. So 42 was the height, 84 was the width. Okay. And 168 was the length. Okay. And okay. with this module, you can, like a jigsaw puzzle, assemble it. Yes. That was also the purpose of the yeah. mathematician. Mm -hmm. But I did maquettes, but I didn't realize with maquettes exactly how to assemble because I was trying to assemble them the way the mathematician was with his rules. But then I realized that the 42 centimeter high, yeah. you could double the high by having two modules. But then they didn't fit together. You have to put a module below to make the it needs. stable oh, yeah. or whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it started to be uh, very fun. And when we, I managed through a contact of mine to have a very large space in the Palais de Tokyo yeah. for the experiment. Right. Yeah. That was not a show. That was just like some people who knew my work and say, okay, this space is free. Do your experiment and that's it. Yeah, that's amazing. And so we had this space and we, we learned about the modules together. Mm -hmm. I had a couple of configurations in mind, but Sylvain and all the people uh, at Isle, Nick Jensen and yeah. all the other, Joseph Bier were there too, even though it's not Isle, but Yeah. So we had some small scale maquette of the mm -hmm. modules. Yeah. And we were uh, putting them in a certain order. They were skating them. And when they were tired of it or when they had another idea, we went moving them and doing another type of uh, obstacle. Okay. And at the same time, I was like observing all this and also finding configuration that were definitely not good for skateboarding, mm -hmm. but that had a sculptural potential okay. that I would be very happy to show within an exhibition and without skaters. Okay. So that's how this project developed. Okay. And it's amazing because it's still very uh, present today. Yeah. Like I've been invited to a museum north of Vancouver. Okay. I'm going in a couple of weeks. Oh yeah. And they build. Uh, nine modules and when you okay. build nine modules it's like it's a lot of commitment yeah, 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 yeah. so there will be a paving space event uh, cool. in this museum and then it will be presented in the show
when we got in touch a few months ago, you told me that you were going to do a project with Nosbun and with, I think Sylvain was associated with it as well. Yeah, well, I'm the lucky one because like he's also sponsored by uh, Nosbun, so it's another oh, yeah. good occasion to, to, to hang him. out with him. Yeah, yeah. to hang out and to see him skate. And so what was the this project? It's what you see be, behind you, these two columns. Oh yeah. Uh, Alexi from Nosbun wanted to have a sculpture of mine in the shop. Uh-huh. And that's always the same. Like I don't see myself as a skate obstacle tuner. Mm-hmm. Like you say, like when you tune a car, like yeah. I, I love skate obstacles so much, mm-hmm. and I love DIY spots so much that I think they are like, and there are so many people working on this mm-hmm. that they are more collectively more intelligent and more gifted, and they have more ideas than me. So if it's just making one skate obstacle, then it has no meaning to me. Mm-hmm. The meaning is like I meet or I discover objects in the science museum and I see a connection or a possibility with a skateboard move or an activation by skaters and suddenly this is an object that I had to make even if the skater were not interested mm-hmm. but it helped me uh, investigate more okay. that's, that's this type of connection that I liked making mm-hmm. like in one object two, three, four different worlds to connect. Collide, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that I had to find an idea or I had to listen to myself and my desire. Mm-hmm. And I was working on different things like at the moment, Scottish and English sundials from the 18th yes. uh, century. Okay. So there are not replicas of these sundials, but there are some aspects of the geometry that relates to them. Uh-huh. And the type of curves that you have okay. is also linked to the cycloid and other curves. Okay. You see different curves. Uh-huh. When you look at them closely, you can see that all of them are different. Oh, really? So one of them is an arc of a circle. One of them is an ellipse. One of them is a cycloid. Another one is a hyperbola and a parabola. Yeah. All these, like, you have yeah. six different curves. Okay, yeah. And then these sculptures, which is like a, a column or a totem, you put them horizontally and it becomes like a, just a ledge or what we used to call yeah. like a, when I was a kid or a teenager, we call that a putra rock. Putra rock. Yeah, okay. like only people skating in the 80s would know the, the expression. Okay. So like it's a flat bar. Obviously. Okay, okay. And so we had a, we installed them maybe 500 meters from where I live and on okay. the skateboard spot where I do slappies now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was just a small session. Actually, it's not like you cannot do that many uh, different tricks on it, but we had a very good uh, photographer, okay. Thibault Lenour, and there will be uh, also uh, a video, a skate, a skate video, and the sculpture will be in Nosebone cool. in a couple of weeks. Do you know when, when the video is supposed to come out? Uh, I would say mid-September. Okay. So usually I end up this podcast with one question before I, we head into the friends' questions. Okay. And the last question I ask usually the guests is what's the most valuable lesson that you feel that you've learned from skateboarding? Um, I'm not sure if I got it through skateboarding, but I think that to me skateboarding is to see skateboarding as a methodology, like to observe the world, to document the world, to adapt to the world, and only if needed, then you have to build something and to arrange uh, forms and stuff. And that's still what I'm doing as an artist, Mm -hmm. and I hope that's what I'm doing as a as an individual and uh, as a person. So I would say like in the best case, like skateboarding taught me to be uh, more aware of Mm -hmm. some of the things around and that I think that's still what it should be. 
Okay, let's finish this with the friends questions. So this first question is from Bertrand Trichet mm-hmm. from Carhartt. So he said, if Marcel Duchamp was a famous current skateboarder, who would it be and why? That's very, very difficult because <laughs> Marcel Duchamp is a revolutionary, mm-hmm. but he's also a very lazy artist. <laughs> like the catalogue yeah. raisonné de Duchamp is maybe like a <laughs> hundred times less big than Picasso. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> who would that be? So lazy, but revolutionary, lazy right? and revolutionary. Um, But honestly, I think in a way, like Rodney Mullen is not lazy, so it's not yeah. exactly him. But um, maybe someone like Neil Blender or something else. It would not be Mark Gonzalez. It would be too easy, yeah. difficult. I was Bertrand. I will think about it. <laughs> okay, perfect. All right, this one is from uh, Arnaud de Dieu. So he said, I'd be curious to know what you honestly think of all these skatable artworks that are popping up, especially in Bordeaux. Can we refer to these as artworks outside of the art realm? Isn't it kind of a devaluation of art and skateboarding for that matter? It's a very interesting uh, question and it depends uh, the point of reference that I take. Mm-hmm. I think skatable sculpture is a nice concept to get rid of some uh, limitation of the people who are saying like, is it a skate park? If it is a skate park, you must be like 20 centimeters away from that and the curve should be this and that, mm-hmm. all this control uh, thing. Yeah. And at the moment you say that, but no, this is not a skate park, this is a sculpture, then mm-hmm. you get more freedom. Yeah. And also because of the concept of mm-hmm. art, Mm-hmm. you might get more respect from a city hall or, yes. or whatever. So as a tool, I think it's fantastic because mm-hmm. it helps uh, developing new forms. Mm-hmm. But then I'm not always formally or aesthetically, I'm not always amazed by the skatable sculptures. Yeah. And my problem sometimes is they are just like a nicely painted skate obstacle. But I also was very, very impressed of the free basin by Simpark years ago. Like that was a, a wooden skate bowl, but mm-hmm. on piloty in French. So high up. It means it was in a very big Biennale. I don't know where. Okay. It's written in the chronology. Okay. So basically, you can walk beneath the structure oh, yeah, and you yeah, see yeah. it like a, like a boat, and you see all the woodwork, and then you have skaters on top. Yes, I think there's are, a photo of it in the book, right? Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most yeah, probably yeah. made it for right. Pull it out. Yeah. And also you have all the acoustic experience because oh, yeah. we, we all uh, had this experience to sit inside the mini ramp to be in the shade mm-hmm. like, yeah. to protect yeah. from the sun. Yeah. And, and you have like this acoustic mm-hmm. yeah. experience, like this reverb of, mm-hmm. uh, of the skateboarding. That's what this artist, Sim Park, managed to transfer to the general public. Okay. And then I was also very, very impressed uh, by the moving units, I think it's what they were called, by uh, the side effect of of urethan okay. in London mm-hmm. there were like I think very uh, thoughtful uh, sculptures and stuff so for me a skatable sculpture is like a normal sculpture it's not because it exists that it will be good yeah. as an artwork mm-hmm. and now I see some uh, art students and architecture students who come to see me or send me messages on Instagram because they did a skatable sculpture and they think I will automatically uh, like approve, it approve of it uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and I approve the energy the idea yeah. but not necessarily uh, the artwork the result in, in yeah. itself mm-hmm. and it's also linked 
like it's been said like it's I'm trained as a conceptual artist I did like long studies mm -hmm. so for me art has an history when I'm making an artwork I want this artwork to last I want this artwork to be able to stand in the museum next to some very uh, strong artist it means that I am not like a self-taught artist when I do something I do it with the consciousness of the people that came before me mm -hmm. and so that makes me humble yeah. and very arrogant at the same time <laughs> because basically I want to enter history but I also know that enter history sometimes is just like leaving a footnote yeah. it's yeah. not being Marcel Duchamp once again yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and sometimes some of the skatable sculptures or some people who didn't go to art school and who have like a very heavy uh, painting practice and uh, they think art is about just self-expression but for me it's as if you would do a skate video again and you will skate exactly the same spot and exactly do the same trick that was done already uh, once or uh, yeah, 50 yeah. times mm -hmm. and when I am with skaters with mm -hmm. professional skaters I'm always like amazed to see that say oh no but he did that on this one oh, yeah. so I cannot do my trick there or <laughs> at least not this way and I'm like yeah. relax you could do it and I say no mm -hmm. no I cannot mm -hmm. just relax I mean like the unwritten rules of yeah, skateboarding but <laughs> it's a rule or it's a shared history and yeah. they want to make it different and, yeah. and whatever so mm. basically they have the problem that I have as an artist yeah. and as a non-professional skater mm -hmm. sometimes I think their problem is actually not relevant at all yeah, yeah, yeah. that I don't mind if they do the same trick again because that would be 10 years after or that would be yeah. a different style and it's a different person so it will be different so, yeah. yeah and so I understand mm -hmm. that a self-taught artist would exactly tell the same thing to me yes. like yeah. I don't care if Uh, this guy or this woman did a piece like this before me or whatever like I don't care about this history like, yeah. I just want to do it myself and, and that's fine with it mm -hmm. I understand it but that's not exactly what I am hoping for of like high art let's say yeah yeah, yeah. Alright, this one is from Sylvain Tonnelli. Actually, we, we mentioned him a few times. This is a funny one. He said, Tomorrow morning at breakfast, an alien comes to knock on your door. You are surprised, but he seems pretty nice. He says he heard about you through paving space. He says he comes from a galaxy filled with geometrical shapes unknown to man and that you can go with him right this minute to study them for a few years and then come back to Paris with all of your work. <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, only rollerblading is authorized <laughs> on his planet. It is mandatory to rollerblade for at least an hour every day. His spaceship is leaving from Place d'Italie in 30 minutes. What do you decide? I'm going straight ahead and I will rollerblade for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. <laughs> uh, <si> <laughs> yeah, I, when he sent me this, I, I was laughing. I was like, wow, that's pretty funny. <laughs> This one is from Soy Pande, who I saw a few weeks ago. So he said, Hi Raphael, it seems to me that art as a concept has become somewhat obscure, difficult to define, and I'd be curious to know what is, according to you, the purpose of art, and therefore the role of an artist within society. Wow, yeah. Soy. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, very, uh, very, uh, very thoughtful. <laughs> uh, 
I think it's okay the diversity and maybe the purpose of art is to express the diversity uh, of the world but maybe to express this diversity as this uh, extreme point like to do that like no other people take time if you're doing choosing to do something very simple mm-hmm. like there is an artist who chooses to dedicate his whole life into counting writing numbers on, mm-hmm. on the canvas yep. he started at one and he finished at I don't know mm-hmm. many million Yeah, yeah, yeah. died but like he took that seriously and everybody could do that mm-hmm. but he dedicated his life to that and it's commitment yeah so I think maybe the purpose of art is to express the diversity of the world with a maximum of commitment okay even if you're lazy you can express your laziness uh, <laughs> like you can commit to your, to your laziness to, to, to your laziness <laughs> like Leonardo da Vinci committed to his laziness like uh-huh. he didn't produce that many paintings but only because he saw that painting was not the most important thing to do mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so he had to make engineer work he had to explore, uh, to things, explore uh, geometry and yeah. mathematics and the inside of the of the body so mm-hmm. but because he did that he was a lazy painter mm-hmm. who did not finish uh, his work so that's yeah. w- uh, an example mm-hmm. and also from my study in art school I think this question of definition of an artwork of what is art not mm-hmm. of an artwork but what is art mm-hmm. it's a philosophical problem Problem. we call that mm-hmm. aesthetic like the yeah. branch of uh, philosophy yeah, which yeah. study what art is mm-hmm. and at some point with all the revolutions of the 20th century the only good answer to that and I'm borrow, borrow, oh, borrowing it from an <laughs> <laughs> American philosopher called Nelson Goodman okay. is that it's not a question of what is art mm-hmm. it's not possible to answer that anymore mm-hmm. but we have to switch to when is art ah. so it's a question of context Okay. and for me I'm a type of artist who was taught art within this important of the context it's where mm. you stand yeah. that's why the question of the skatable sculpture was very interesting too because it depends if you stand within the context of the skate community or if you stand in the context of the art community and yeah. when I say yeah. art I say high heart and when I yeah. say high heart it must be strange but there was a very famous exhibition in the MoMA in New York 20 years ago called uh, The High and the Low about the connection between the high culture of the museums of the right. universities and stuff mm-hmm. and the subcultures from uh, comic books to uh, yeah. TV programs and these things okay. and there's always been connections in between these sure. different cultures yeah, yeah. but it just depends where you decide to watch like where you watch yeah. And this is also a very Galilean question. Mm. You cannot study motion mm-hmm. if you don't set your uh, where, camera. Where you're looking from. Yeah. yeah. Like if you want to study the motion of a ship, mm-hmm. will you put your camera in the ship yeah. or uh, on the shore, like right, on, right, the, right. in the arbor? Mm-hmm. And that will change totally yeah. the definition of motion. Mm-hmm. And to me, this is the same with art. So okay. I'm not very sorry, sorry. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> you're skipping a, a bit. <laughs> essentialist. No, I'm not an essentialist. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't think art is a single thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to museum every exhibitions and most of the time I'm disappointed with what I see and sometimes I'm thinking I'm getting old and I don't like anything anymore and suddenly <laughs> like one show after 10 I see something and I don't exactly know why or it will take me a lot of time to figure it out I have this same thrill the same feelings the same emotion and I said it's okay it's just that I need to see 10 shows to have one that I really like mm-hmm. and I suppose I don't go to the cinema as often as before yep. but for a cinema fan I think it's exactly the same yeah 
you don't like all the films that, yeah. you, that you go and see. You're not amazed every time you go see, yeah. And when course. I watch skateboard videos now, yeah. I, I'm bored most of the time. Yes, yes, uh, exactly. Uh, but suddenly I see a, a session or an edit that I find amazing. Yeah, it sparks and, you and, again. Yeah, yeah and that's... Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, this one is from Dan McGee. So, which of your favorite non-contemporary sculptors would be the best at designing skatable objects? And choose one piece of their art that you'd like to transform into an obstacle with a few tweaks. That's a bit of a complex question, but... Mm. Uh, so, favorite non-contemporary sculptors. Okay, I think, I don't know the name of the sculptor, but there are uh, huge sundials in India, in Jaipur and in Delhi, mm -hmm. with a lot of curves and a lot of steps. And these are completely magical objects, scientific objects, but they are also like almost perfect skate parks, okay. which don't work. So I think these people in Delhi, whoever they were, mm -hmm. would be the best people to build skate parks and skate okay. obstacles. Yeah. And also they would have like amazing marbles and mm -hmm. they are amazing colorists. So I would say these artists or uh, craftsmen who, okay. who built them. Or maybe the people who built the pyramids, but that's almost oh, the yeah. same idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one is from Arthur Chiron, who's another artist. I was a student in Angers when I was a teacher. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't know you were... Okay, you were his teacher, okay. He said, I remember back in the days reading skateboard magazines and the way skateboarders were often asked in interviews about their top three. Mm. Today, I'd like to ask yours. Can you tell us about your top three contemporary artists, books, movies, music bands? Okay. Tacitadin that I quote okay. in a completely uh, different field uh, I would say uh, Gabriel Orozco a Mexican artist that I really love mm -hmm. and in a very different world uh, Hippolyte Engen a duo of uh, women artists French artists okay and so but that's a little bit biased I would say okay <laughs> What about like books or movies or music bands? Do you want to pick one of those maybe? Uh, music bands, yeah, I mean like, uh, let's say at the moment, Low, L-O-W, it's okay. a band that I really like, like Slow Core. Mm -hmm. Stereolab is a oh, yeah? band that I uh, really like too. Mm -hmm. And what would be the third one? It will be like Bill Callahan, uh, okay. say, like folk singer. And books... I would pick up only like novels and I would say anything by the French writer Jean Echnoz, mm -hmm. anything by the Argentinian writer uh, Georges Louis Borges. I don't know. Yes, you mentioned him earlier, yeah. And anything by the Italian writer Italo Calvino. All of them were very important in different moments of my life, but mm -hmm. okay. any, any other books. Okay, I have uh, three last questions. Let's do this one. Hey Raf, how's it going? So um, I wanted to ask you a bit about your collaborative process with the artist Christian Heidacker. I know you two have been friends and um, worked together for a long time. And I just kind of wondered what that does to your own practice. Does it kind of make you challenge your own ideas or, or what's it like to have another artist kind of engaging with your ideas? Do you, do you sort of like discover things about your own work you previously didn't, didn't know or... Or is it sort of, does it challenge your ego in, in any way? Like, oh, I want to do it this way and, and this person wants to do it that way. So, yeah, I just wondered if you could just give me a brief description of what it's like, what, what collaboration feels like and how it, how it helps or challenges your own practice. Thanks, mate. Bye. Oh, that was Nick. Yes, Nick, Nick Jensen, Jensen, IO founder and pro skater. 
Yeah, thanks, Nick. Is uh, Nick is a great painter too. And yeah, we have yeah. this common great friend, uh, Christian mm-hmm. Hidaka. Yep. And Christian, and I met when I was a student in Winchester, so a long okay. time ago. Oh, and okay. we do a lot of duo shows. Okay. And basically, Nick, I would say that at least in my fantasy, because I've always been like a shitty guitar players, <laughs> but I had a couple of bands. But basically, what we do with Christian, I would say, is is what I would dream of doing if I was a good musician with another guitarist or another musician. Okay. And I think we play a very different instrument, but we like the same type of music, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we are really complementary. Complementary, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my practice is rather solitary, even mm-hmm. though I'm working with a lot of craftsmen, mm-hmm. but the process is rather solitary. But yeah. To work with Christian is always so stimulating. Stimulating, mm-hmm. it's, and it helps us both to go to territories that we cannot go because, like, suddenly we can almost vampirize or like take the works. Like, he's doing amazing uh, wall paintings, mm-hmm. and maybe one day I will be capable of doing a wall painting of my own. But at the moment, I'm very happy to to have this tool and this aesthetical, not aesthetical, but uh, pictorial possibilities like to have painting as a background uh, painting as a tool to divide a space or to complexify a space Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I think Christian who is representing a lot of objects in his painting Mm -hmm. suddenly he can play with something very physical like a sculpture of mine he can include sculptures of mine in his own painting so it's really playful and it's uh, multiplying the possibilities like going Mm -hmm. to the power of two to the power of three yeah 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 I'm not too familiar with him, but I'll, I'll check out some of his work. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. He just did a very beautiful board for us. Yes, I, I saw that. Yeah, not not long ago, right? Yeah, yeah just a, a few days or weeks ago. Weeks or yeah, yeah, yeah. last month. Okay, this one is from. Let's see. Let's see if he says his name. Hello, Raphael. I discovered your work when I was working on the skate exhibition at the Triple Star in Lille in 2006. And for this exhibition, you had written a text which was called La question est de savoir qui sera le maître. This text was also published in La Conjunction Interdite a little bit later. And in this text, you talk about Roland Barthes and his analysis in relation to children's game to exist as a creator rather than just a simple user. In my opinion, to recognize oneself as a creator in every aspect of our life is essential. And as a skateboarder, I see this practice as one of the only ones to cause this in a constant way. Can you tell us a bit more about Barthes' analysis of children's games and how you perceive this notion of skateboarder creator? The text of Roland Barthes is in a book called uh, Mythology. is actually a very small text and is a critique of the plastic toys mm-hmm. and uh, an apology of wooden toys. And mostly in the article, as far as I remember, I haven't read it for 15 years, mm-hmm. like wooden blocks or like assembling toys that's funny because it really makes a difference between the plastic and the wood Mm -hmm. and like probably that was before Lego exists and what built my uh, my mind or my practice Mm -hmm. is really playing Lego as uh, as a kid oh yeah and that also built the way I consider forms like I like moving units more than uh, let's say working with clay Uh, oh yeah you you have children who are better with uh, pata modelé or let's say clay and I would play with them because it's completely 
you can do whatever you want. So, mm. And you're creative. Yeah. But you're also creative in a very different way when you are playing with Kapla or layers oh, yeah. or yeah, yeah. this type of thing. Uh -huh. So maybe it's not only like the creativity and also like he's talking about dolls or he's talking about like the same kind of things you buy to little girls mm -hmm. so that they will be like good housewives when, <laughs> when they will be older. Yeah. So it's a critique of these things like a sociological okay. critique. Right. But at the same time like when you offer a doll to a girl she can make movies or see at a place with a dog or she could do that also with the Lego figures or with the Playmobil. Mm -hmm. I see that with my daughter today. Yep. Not because she plays with dolls because she doesn't like them but there are many ways to be creative. Skateboarding mm -hmm. is one way to be creative but in a certain way it's not the only one like Jeremy Daclin is doing fishing. Maybe if I was a fisher addict mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. I was a teenage mm -hmm. I would have built my relationship to the world from this yeah. activity of fishing yeah, yeah. like the patience that you need to have mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. type of movement mm -hmm. the invisible string the flies that you have to build mm -hmm. so I always say that to the students like it's not because I am a skateboarder that I would get on well with you if you are a skateboarder mm -hmm. like if your passion is I don't know whatever like music or reading or mm -hmm. science fiction book or yeah, yeah. whatever turns you on really mm -hmm. <laughs> Are you okay with doing this very last one? Okay, let's try it's, uh, it. It's Gustav Eden. It's an interesting one. Hey, Raphael. And hey, Quenin. Thanks a lot for the opportunity to ask a question. Really appreciate it. Right, so I'm interested in, Raphael, your, your work with, uh, how, how you work with context and setting for your work. It seems to me that the uh, institutionalized art world and skateboarding kind of have opposing directions here, where the art world creates a gallery space in order to create freedom within that space for anything. Anything inside the space is art. Uh, and in doing so, perhaps also suggests that what's outside of the gallery space is not yet art. Skateboarding is kind of the opposite in a way, that when we create institutional contexts like skate parks or contests, then we take away the freedom and we kind of reduce the expression. So, so skateboarding constantly rejects categorization and rejects formalization and sort of gives more credence to the, the free skating that takes place in the streets, or at least in theory. So I'm really interested in how how your work, I mean, uh, how you use these two kind of worlds and settings to inform your work. And, and to give an example, I'd love to hear how you reason, would reason or approach uh, an exhibition that was half of the exhibition was in a gallery space uh, inside and half the exhibition was outside in a public space. I mean, in that kind of context, what work would go inside the gallery and what would go outside the gallery and how would you like the audience to engage with the different work and so on. So I'd love to hear how you, how you would approach uh, that kind of example. All right, thanks a lot and hope to catch you both soon. Take it easy. It's a very complex question once again. Yeah. I think some artists, other artists than me, are working a lot more than I am on the question of context that is yep. expressed uh, here. Mm -hmm. I must say that first I feel much more at ease with the museum uh, context. Maybe for the reason that uh, Gustave is uh, explaining very uh, thoughtfully. Also because in the museum you're choosing to go there. Yep. Like, 
maybe not as a kid with your school, but mm -hmm. and the public space, I find it difficult. I haven't done that many artworks in the public space, yeah. but basically I find it hard to impose anything on anyone, mm -hmm. but yet this is tempting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I do, and I'm not sure if it's a strategy which I will carry on uh, forever, but if I take two projects, the cycloid ramp, mm -hmm. and also uh, an ongoing project with a chimney, what I like is the fact that you might not know that you are in front of a sculpture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that the form or the materials in themselves are not sufficient enough to characterize the object or the space that you have in front of you as an artwork. Mm -hmm. Today, and that goes back to the question that Sawyer was asking about what is art or what is yeah. defined as art, mm -hmm. it's getting too complicated. Like for me, the context, but the historical context is what defines. Yeah. Like There are a lot of buildings that are very sculptural, and if you would ask me, are they like really large sculptures? I would say, well, yeah, why not? Mm -hmm. The Statue of Liberty is clearly a sculpture, yeah. and then you can you have staircases inside, and so yeah. it's also clearly a, a building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the reason why any building is not a sculpture is just like because they the architects decided to work as architects and not as fine artists, and if they want, because it's just a question of choice, or if they choose to find themselves as sculptors yeah. and architects mm -hmm. that they're right mm -hmm. and if they want to try to define a concept of an artwork which is a building mm -hmm. and building to be an artwork why not but they will have first to define it and also they will have to convince all the other art historians and art critics and mm -hmm. we will discuss this and to see if it's just like a straightforward idea and something that it's thought on the counter of a, of a bar and mm -hmm. or if it is very thoughtful and if it helps renewing the concept of an artwork. Mm -hmm. So so I would say that's uh, my strategy to try to, to blur uh, the boundary. Okay. And in the chimney works that I'm doing right now, I've been commissioned to emphasize the ruins of an ancient uh, factory. Okay. Basically to work around a truncated brick chimney. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm uh, building a second chimney next to it. Mm -hmm. And two... One floor of concrete and yep. one top of concrete, okay. mixing the new, uh, connecting the new chimney that I am building. Okay. And the new chimney, basically, it has the height of the older chimney when it was unbroken. Okay. So okay. from the distance, you just like put a chimney in a space and it's going back to 50 years ago when this chimney was in place and it's the same uh, material mm -hmm. but then you go closer to this uh, chimney and you realize that it is connected to the other one and suddenly it might look like some very simple still life like a painter that I really like uh, Morandi who is mm -hmm. painting like a couple of bottles and very simple shapes Okay. so that could be this type of sculpture very simple still life and then you can enter inside the chimney, the new one, okay. 25 meter high. And inside you see that it's actually ornamented with a spiral of bricks okay. going to the top. Okay. And this type of spiral was used in uh, Tudor architectures in okay. England in the 17th or 16th century to ornate chimneys. It is beautiful, mm -hmm. it's amazing, I love them. Mm -hmm. I did replicas of them already in my work. Okay. But it's also like a, a way to show off. 
mm-hmm. like you build huge chimneys that looks like column okay. and you do some extremely uh, complicated geometrical uh, patterns on them okay. so my idea was to take this uh, Tudor chimneys mm-hmm. and to return it like a sock okay. so from the outside this is just an industrial chimneys mm-hmm. but if you are curious enough to go closer and closer yeah. to this new chimney that looks old and that gives like a temporal uh, confusion yeah okay a temporal confusion because right. there is a chimney where 50 years ago was a chimney so suddenly this is like you're back in time or this yeah. type of uh, confusion yes, yes so if you are curious enough you go closer and you get to what is that might be considered artistic because it is ornamented i'm mm-hmm. not sure what is ornamented is actually artistic mm-hmm. but at least what is refined what is taken care of or that was long to make and stuff is inside this chimney and it's only it's the only way to access this part of the work is to get go closer inside. And, yeah, yeah okay all right let's wrap it up here thank you Rafael. yeah thank you That's it for my conversation with Raphael. Follow him on Instagram at Raphael Zarka and visit his website rafaelzarka.com to check out some of his artworks throughout the years and get your hands on some of his books. Raphael Zarka is spelled R-A-P-H-A-E-L-Z-A-R-K-A. If you haven't seen it already, I highly recommend you check out the Paving Space video by Dan McGee from 2016 that we talked about on YouTube. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Boards.